welcome to episode 1510 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, and I am joined once again by Sam Miller of ESPN. Sam, how are you? I'm good, Meg. How are you? I'm good. It's nice to get to talk to you so much this week. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we, this is our fourth, our fourth call. Yeah. We've done we, several we've done several calls a little later in this episode. We will preview the Red Sox with Alex Spear of the Boston Globe and the Giants with our pal Grant Brisby of the Athletic. Yeah. What an episode. And such an episode. Alex such, and Brisby. Wow. I know. Uh, an embarrassment of riches, really. I mean, we have had all of our guests have been really, really great during these preview pods. But it's just, you know, sometimes we're talking to people we don't know, and I enjoy that because I get to know them and get to hear a new perspective on baseball. And sometimes we get to talk to our pals, and that's fun because it's always fun to talk to your pals. So, uh, what an embarrassment of riches in this episode, mm-hmm, I have to say. Yeah, two yeah. main stagers, in my yeah. opinion. Yeah. We recorded our segment with Alex on the Red Sox a little earlier this week, so I guess we should give a brief Chris Sale update so that I don't have to record a little outro bit on this, which is that it does not seem as if he needs Tommy John surgery most immediately, but that this elbow flexor strain problem is significant and he sounds very upset about it he (laughs) told reporters that it sucks and tommy john is not sort of out the window it sounds like they'll know more in a couple of weeks but it's not great Hmm. and so what's the good what's the good way that this could go i guess the good way is that he could rehab it and come back later in the season and and pitch and hopefully do it well But in anticipation of a long delay and needing rotation depth, the Red Sox signed Colin McHugh, who only recently started throwing himself after having an injury riddled 2019. So that helps them get better. But if he ends up having to throw a lot of starter innings, that seems bad. So, Well, we didn't know this information when we talked to Alex, but it was kind of clearly, I think Alex was was fairly pessimistic at that point. Yes. Yes. And so that... Probably, I don't know. I think that's a little bit baked into expectations for the Red Sox right now is that, well, I guess I guess this is sort of superstition, but I think baked into expectations for the Red Sox right now is that things aren't going to go well. Like if right. there is something that could go one way or the other this year, I think there's a sense that it's not going to go the good way. Yeah, I think that that is right. So that'll come that up. Right. That'll come up later. Yeah, we'll talk about that later. I want to say one quick thing before we go to that, and then we will get right into these uh, these previews, which is that people going on vacation is is funny, and I I enjoy it when Ben goes on vacation. And let me, this is going to end up being nice for everyone. I enjoy it because I appreciate in his absence how much I enjoy talking to Ben. It's like, yeah, I didn't get to talk to my buddy Ben this week, and I wish I could. I revel in the opportunity to get to talk to you because I don't get to talk to you as much as I would like to. And it makes me appreciate all of the good work that Ben and Dylan do to edit these episodes because when Ben is gone, I sub for him and not always as ably as you might hope or expect. And it makes me realize that the production that goes into getting effectively wild out three times a week so anyway i just thought i'd express some appreciation for for all of you because ben's absence has uh had that sort of top of mind for me so mm. there you go huzzah huzzah, huzzah. To both of them so having said nice things we will now take a quick break and on the other end of this we will have our interview with alex spear of the boston globe about the boston red sox Change it. 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 Change it.
discuss the Boston Red Sox and to do that we are joined by the Boston Globe's Alex Spear. Alex, how are you? I am just great. I am back in my home away from uh, away from Big League Camp for a little bit, which is probably a good thing. Yeah. How are you? We're well. We're doing well. <laughs> I am also in my home, so you know, we have that in common. I think before we talk about the state of the roster and the outlook for 2020, I wanted to ask you about the atmosphere in camp that you have just gotten back from. Obviously, this team has been in a state of change for the last several months, a very public state of change. They fired their general manager. They had to fire their manager. They traded away Mookie Betts and David Price. Then they almost didn't. Then they actually did. And against all of that, the league's punishment for the Red Sox sign stealing is still looming. So I'm curious, what's the atmosphere like in camp and how have the players there sort of dealt with what I imagine is a pretty distracting start to the season. Well, on top of that, on top of all of that change that you've already noted, uh, there is also the kind of strangeness of the Red Sox having the largest big league camp that I can remember them having. Usually they've been relatively low in the mid 50s to upper 50s in terms of number of players in camp. And this year, as they pursue a kind of different mode of roster building, one that's more opportunistic and use, you know, those final spots of the 40 man is rather consequential. There are 68 people in camp, so they had to bring in temporary lockers and wow. uh, and have a much more crowded workplace environment. So in terms of how they're handling it, now that they're into baseball activities, like on a day-to-day basis, it's routine, it's where am I supposed to go and when, you know, games here, games there. That That's all kind of fine. That's That's on like athlete cruise control. But at the same time, it is clearly a different place uh, to be showing up, right? There's not a lot of music on a day-to-day basis. It's not loud in the clubhouse, as you're accustomed to hearing with people who are familiar with each other on different sides of a room. There's still, I think, pretty obviously a feeling out process among the players for each other and trying to make sense of the fact that there is a pretty considerable amount of change that's occurred in a small period of time and that they don't really know very well all of the parts of that trade, you know, uh, whether Chaim Bloom, who's, you know, made a real point of trying to get to know a lot of the players, but nonetheless, there's only so much you can do when your life is consumed for a month by, you know, trading Mookie Betts and David Price, as well as hiring a manager, which you didn't expect. I think that there's, I, I would say that the best way to describe the group as I've experienced it in the time that I have been down in two separate stints is unformed. It's kind of an inchoate state. That, uh, that awaits definition, and I'm not sure exactly how quickly that definition is going to come because, you know, the, the definition is changing is, is changing in ongoing fashion while they find out things like, oh, Chris Sale, who said that he felt awesome, is suddenly maybe not going to, maybe going to be missing a substantial to, a substantial chunk of 2020, and perhaps all of it. So these are strange things. Yeah, and and as I mentioned, there's still a very big piece of this offseason puzzle that has yet to completely materialize. Do we have any update on when the org is going to learn what their punishment is for sign stealing? Not really. The can keeps getting kicked down the road. I think that we everyone anticipated that it was going to be done before the official start of spring training, and then Rob Manfred said that it was going to be done, you know, before the end of February, and that's no longer the case. And then it, you know, it kept being kind of well, maybe later this week. And so I guess that at this point. Until uh, until it's until it's released, I am going to assume that it, they're they're continuing to research it. The union thought a couple of weeks ago that they were done with the research with the interview phase of it. I'm not sure that's the case anymore. Although I will say this: 
that part of things like doesn't affect the 2020 team, except sure. for unless Ron Renneke gets named in it, which I really don't think is going to happen, then it wouldn't really affect what's happening in the preparations for 2020. It's more of an ex post facto redefinition of what a championship team did or didn't do with consequences for 2021 and beyond. I want to ask a slightly more specific version of Meg's question, which is, are the Red Sox players mad that Mookie Betts got traded? Because, you know, one of the things that players ask of their front offices is to get more players that they've heard of and that they think are good and that they think are going to win. And so I would think that just like from a messaging standpoint to the clubhouse, this is the sort of thing that you sometimes think could really send a message that players would be angry at being sent, not just disappointed that the team's going to be a little bit worse, but actually angry that this is the message that was sent to them. Is that simmering? I don't think so. I, I haven't gotten that sense. I have gotten the sense that, you know, they're they're wondering what life after Mookie is going to be like. Xander Bogarts kind of unprompted the other day referred to the pressure that the team may feel to kind of address his void. But very candidly, like they are the, the team, the members of the team who have been around are mostly really well paid and probably at, uh, at a certain point, like recognize that there was going to be some kind of a financial reckoning that occurred. I, I think that there had been a lot of talk in the clubhouse a year ago about contract status and who was getting what around Major League Baseball. And I think that there was there was an understanding that came out of some of that, that there was a pretty decent chance that Mookie might not resign and uh, and that there were, there were going to be questions about his long-term future in Boston. Some of the players said candidly before they broke up at the end of 2019 that they thought that Mookie would be traded because of what the commitment to him might be and how many other commitments they had with you know, Sale and Bogarts joining the twenty-plus million-dollar-year club uh, that already featured JD Martinez and David Price and almost Nate Evaldi, who is making you know seventeen million bucks a year. So I think that there's there is a a bit of a business savvy about the idea that Mookie is gone. I think that there was a long expectation of the possibility that Mookie might eventually get dealt. So I don't think that there's I, I don't think there was like tremendous shock. Once it actually happened, this has been a possibility talked about even for the Boston Red Sox going back for a while. So, I mean, if a team that were, you know, like projected to be a fourth place team or, you know, to win 72 games traded their superstar a year before free agency, we would be we would be pretty used to that. And part of what makes this such a kind of confounding trade to, to analyze or to have emotions about. Well, actually, I don't feel confounded about. I don't think I, I think I would have rather they not traded him. But it's yeah. confounding in a way because it's not quite clear what the Red Sox are. So like I'm looking at the Red Sox starting rotation right now. And, you know, they have their number two starter is Nathan Eovaldi, who was, uh, you know, disastrous last year and <laughs> um, was not healthy, but also very, very, very bad. And then you have... <laughs> <laughs> Which is true. I mean, I maybe I'm, I'm not saying he can't be good again. I like him, but no, you know, no, it's just it's an, it's an extreme but not an accurate characterization of his 20 season. <laughs> and then you've got Martin Perez, who had 6.27 ERA in the second half and uh, 6.22 ERA the year before, and you know is not really anybody's idea of a sure thing health wise either. And then you have Ryan Weber, who is a 29-year-old former 22nd round pick with 112 career innings and an 87 career ERA+. And he's the number four starter. And then as it is right now, if we're assuming uh, that Chris Sale is unavailable, there is not a listed fifth starter. 
And that seems so like you read that and you think, oh, well, that's a that is a rebuilding team. That is a team that needs to figure some things out before they're going to be competitive again. And then you sort of go over to the websites and whether, you know, depending on which site you're at, they project to be something like an 85 to 89 win team with something like 35 to 50 percent playoff odds, which puts them right in a camp with like basically the Braves and the A's and the Cardinals and the Cubs and Cleveland, that that sort of zone of teams. And so if you buy those odds, then it feels really weird, you know, to trade your your superstar, your best player. And that's without even, you know, getting into the fact that most of this core was there when they won 108 games two years ago. So I guess the the question is, and this is kind of jumping ahead in the podcast a little bit because we're going to make you tell us exactly how many wins they're going to they're going to have this year. Damn it. Do you buy like does does anything about those projections seem fishy to you or does that seem kind of about right? Is this truly a competitive team with still even without Mookie Betts, a pretty good shot, uh, shot at the playoffs and enough strengths everywhere else to overwhelm that rotation weakness. Well, so I think that most of the projections were formed before Chris Sale, you know, Chris Sale suffered his, uh, his physical, his physical setback the other day where he threw live batting practice for the first time after 200 days of not facing hitters. He got onto the mound and was really excited and, you know, looked pretty good throwing to a couple of, you know, to a right-handed hitter and a left-handed hitter in a live batting uh, practice session. And everyone was really encouraged. And then the next day he felt soreness in his elbow. So that would alter the calculus, right? Because most projections factor in uh, the idea of Chris Sale as a relatively healthy pitcher in the fact that you're probably already now looking at, you know, in a best case scenario, I, I would be awfully surprised if we saw Chris Sale before May. That that alters the calculus, especially given the drop-off that you're talking about. Like, it's not like there's a replacement level pitcher to call up in order to fill in that spot. You're looking at probably at best a below replacement level pitcher and maybe a drastically below replacement level pitcher in terms of in terms of where that gap goes. And so I think that there's there's a significant downward projection even for missing a month, a month and a half, two months of Chris Sale. But if you look at them on paper, right, if you look at if you just look at the lineup, even without Mookie Betts, you can see an awfully you can see a pretty compelling team in terms of what the lineup can do in terms of its potential dynamism andrew benintendi had kind of a crummy year last year like he acknowledged that he had a crummy year and that he wasn't in ideal kind of uh andrew benintendi baseball shape and so you know came back not in the best shape of his life but in uh, the shape of his life that led to his best year in 2018 they still have xander bogarts and rafael devers and jd martinez as three really elite hitters in the middle of the lineup. And th- there's there's a lot of offensive talent in the group. So from that standpoint, you know, that's impressive. Their bullpen, which was off maligned last year, is actually, it, it features a ton of high strikeout guys who probably walked too many people. That's making their home runs more consequential than they should have otherwise been. But the stuff is really, really good. And they were actually, I, I think, a pretty interesting group in the second half of the season. They just didn't have as many games where they were trying to preserve leads late. So I, I think that, you know, I've seen weird things happen in Boston, right? Like I've I've covered the Red Sox for, this is my 19th season. And particularly in the last decade, I saw, I saw the Red Sox wildly overperform and underperform their projections. And it's kind of, it was a, an idea that Ben Charrington and I talked about back when I was doing my book, Shameless Self-Promotion, about the kind of feedback loops that can exist in Boston where the intensity of the environment can really kind of cause the team to spiral in one direction or another. 
based sometimes sometimes on early season factors. So you throw in like a you throw in a weirdness such as Bobby Valentine and a team that looks on paper like that eighty five win projection becomes a you know seventy win team. And you throw in you know something more positive. You throw or you throw in something that's unifying, such as a great clubhouse culture and response to a to a devastating citywide occurrence tragedy in the form of the marathon bombing of 2013. And you have a team that wildly overperforms its projections. Again, cultural change in 2018, along with the addition of JD Martinez, leads a team that probably projects to be in the low 90s in its win totals into 108 win territory. So I'd seen enough to think, okay, to know that I shouldn't dismiss the possibility of contention. But it seems like there are, you know, but it's 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 a diminished group offensively. It can offset some of that some of that diminution by virtue of bounce backs from some guys who underperformed last year. And the pitching staff was already diminished thanks to the absence of price before sales injury scare. Let's stick on the pitching staff for a second because, you know, one of their – it seems strange to say this for a team that dealt away the 2018 MVP, but apart from a couple of smaller signings, they were pretty quiet when it came to free agents this offseason. One of their additions was Martin Perez, who had a really strange season for the Twins. He was really good in the early going, uh, just led by that devastating cutter and then faded pretty dramatically as the season wore on. I think the duration of his deal with the Red Sox probably answers part of my question here, but what are their expectations for him going into this season? I, I think that they view him as being someone with upside beyond what he did in uh, in 2019. Like that that cutter that you referenced, which was a new pitch for him, they feel like is uh, you know grades is a really really good pitch. If you look at stats like you know x woba minus woba, he had one of the biggest disparities in all of baseball in terms of quality of contact versus the outcomes that that contact generated. They they think that there are some small tweaks to pitch usage. I think that their hope is that he would be kind of a decent innings eater. He was he was that for the Twins. He was reliable in their rotation last year and healthy. Who was able to give them somewhere in the vicinity of league average performance? I think they'd be thrilled by that. I think that you know they're they're not looking at him to be a front of the rotation guy with huge upside. They think that he's better than that six plus ERA of last year, even though it, it mirrored pretty closely the six plus ERA of the previous year because the. The, the overall quality of the pitches was better last year. So uh, they're, they're believers that he's that he's better than that guy. How much better? We'll see. There's a quick one. You don't have to go into detail about them, but I went through the two, three, and four starters, and let's presume that Sale isn't available. And let's also presume that, as happens with every team's pitching staff, you end up needing a sixth, seventh, and eighth. If Ryan Weber is the fourth starter, who are the fifth, sixth, and seventh options right now as they need to get more depth? Yeah, this is one of the kind of this is this is a fascinating exercise on a day to day basis. It's uh, you know where the anonymous, you know the the relatively unknown people enter into the middle and late innings of uh, of you know spring training games, and when they start getting multi innings, you're like, oh, is that guy going to be considered for for the rotation or for a bulk innings role? I guess it's worth offering the caveat that there's going to be an awful lot of consideration given to using an opener role and in some in some form or another based on the personnel that they have. Uh, not a guarantee, but certainly a lot of consideration. Beyond that, so Ryan Weber has talked about quite a bit as one of the potential starting pitching candidates. He made a few starts for them last year, basically made one really good start for them and a couple of starts that weren't so good for them. Beyond that, Chris Mazza is a guy who they claim off waivers from the Mets. 
who they think has they think has a pitch mix with a little bit more upside than he's shown in the past. He's a two-seam slider cutter guy who also kind of shows a changeup but doesn't throw it much. And then they're they're having him incorporate a four-seamer to you know to change eye levels and fun stuff like that. But again, this is like a journeyman guy who was released in indie ball a couple of years ago. So not exactly the type of guy who you necessarily expect to be competing competing for one of the five rotation spots. Matt Hall, another guy who's bounced around a little bit, who is. Uh, gaining some consideration for back of the rotation spots. They have one homegrown starter who's probably going to, they have actually two guys who, uh, who are more familiar who may gain some consideration. Tanner Houck is a guy who's their 2017 first round pick who has a really good two seamer, really good slider, especially against right handed hitters, hasn't always been consistent against lefties. If he can locate, if he can do a better job of commanding his slider against lefties, then he can be pretty good against guys from both sides of the plate. He also has a usable, if inconsistent, changeup, et cetera, et cetera. So he's a guy who could get a bit of a look in a year where the Red Sox expect that more of their homegrown guys are going to get looks than in past years. And then Brian Johnson is someone who's been a spot starter for them in the past, who may get some further, you know, who may get some further look as spring training progresses if he's healthy, which he hasn't always been which he has not always been and if his stuff is kind of what it usually is so you went into detail about them thank you i didn't i'm sorry i did that was oh damn i was supposed to be (laughs) brief that's not my forte i'm sorry everyone wanted to hear about chris mazza um (laughs) in a lot of hey wait he is the he's related to joe dimaggio wow wow really yeah third cousins In, in what way uh, his uh, his grandmother. Well, I think that they have the. I think he might have the lineage a little bit off, but uh, yeah, he's uh, his grandmother was first cousins with Joe DiMaggio and Dom DiMaggio. Did you have you have you heard that uh, Martha Stewart babysat Yogi Berra's kids? Oh no, I hadn't. That's I, uh, that's unexpected. I, I read that one, and uh, I've been, it's been on the tip of my tongue about a thousand times over the last like seven months, and I finally just said it so that i will never have to think when's the right time to say this well here's a target guest for you uh josh burns the assistant gm of the uh of the Do- or i don't i don't know what his title is but josh burns of the dodgers front office uh was babysat by julia louis dreyfus as a uh, as a kid growing up in dc wow wow martha yeah. stewart also wrote the uh foreword to snoop dogg's cookbook thanks <laughs> unaffectively wild wow uh i Wow, I really want the ingredients to get into the cookbook. <laughs> Heavy on greens. I was going to say, is it just like step one, open the bag of Doritos, you're done. <laughs> All right. When I was a kid, speaking of being babysat, kind of, when I was a kid, it seemed like there were a lot of storylines about how somebody was replacing somebody else and there was a lot of pressure on them to replace like somebody else you know like the like i don't know will clark would leave and then whoever was playing first base for the giants had like a ton of pressure on him to replace will clark or there was a trade and there'd be a ton of pressure to replace whoever they'd been traded for and i don't really feel like we hear that that much maybe it's because players move around a lot more or maybe we're just smarter with our narratives or what but it really does feel like if you were gonna have a perfect case for that it might be alex verdugo who is now having to replace mookie betts in the same position and also who is um you know was was traded for him in this like trade that i think a lot of people are probably going to remember being upset about for a long time and so i don't know if the existence of jeter downs as well in that trade dilutes how much of the weight of it of justifying it is on alex verdugo i don't know if those sorts of 
having to replace a player pressures still exist in the modern age or not. But does it feel to you like there is a lot of pressure on Alex Verdugo? And I ask particularly because of the Boston feedback loop that you mentioned about seven minutes ago. Is there a potential that there is a serious Boston feedback loop on Alex Verdugo if he is, you know, hitting 240 in uh, mid-June or something? Initially, no. I don't. I don't get that sense. In part because he hasn't really been visible. He isn't swinging a bat yet. He has a stress fracture in his lower back that he incurred last season, and from which he's still recovering. He's pretty close to starting to swing, but he hasn't been. He's nowhere. He's not. He's he's not going to be in games in the next couple of days. So by virtue of that, like he's there. There's not a microscope on a guy. There, when when you can't put someone on the slide. They can't be under a microscope, right? So for now, there is there is not. I think that certainly there will be a considerable amount of scrutiny to his performance once he actually is on the field. Right now, I, w- I would say that most of the notion, no one is selling Alex Verdugo as being the replacement for Mookie Betts, which helps. I, I do think that people have become a little bit more nuanced about how to approach uh, how to approach that question? What about the pressure on Kevin Pillar, who is signed to replace Alex Verdugo, or at least to uh, to be a fourth outfielder to help the Sox do this period when uh, when Verdugo isn't available? But from what I've I've been told by people who know him from his time with the Dodgers, like Verdugo is actually a person who really relishes those kinds of on-field challenges, who like who really likes attention, who likes spotlight and scrutiny and who tends to perform better with that. So I, I think that he's uh, like, uh, he's been asked about uh, that question about like, you know, will there be any pressure? And he's been like, well, Mookie hit faces pressure, like going to a new market that just traded a lot of, you know, that just traded a lot, you know, in order to, in order to acquire him to win a world series. So from everything that I've, that I've heard about Verdugo, people think that he's actually a pretty good on field match for the scrutiny of Boston. He holds himself to a to like high expectations. Has like a kind of borderline cockiness to his game that uh, that tends to that, that may be helpful in terms of dealing with uh, those kinds of expectations. But if he performs poorly, and of course you know the the likelihood of that has to be elevated somewhat by at least in twenty twenty by virtue of the fact that he's coming off an injury, then the scrutiny on the entire organization ratchets up. It's not just on him. I think one place where we have seen a little bit of scrutiny going into that trade, I mean, obviously it was a heavily scrutinized trade, but specific to Verdugo, he is a guy who has had throughout his career some makeup and then off-field concerns. And I'm curious how the team, I know that it has been addressed by the organization publicly, but I'm curious how they're talking about those issues. And if you were a little bit surprised to maybe see him as the centerpiece of this deal, given some of those concerns. When his name came up, I definitely was, you know, I, I definitely was, it was, it was in a way surprising because I, I thought that that's a lot of risk to be assuming given, you know, given that he has been, given that he's been mentioned in connection with an alleged, you know, with an alleged sexual assault in when he was in the minors in 2015, not having been a participant to it, but having been kind of proximate to it when he was in the minor, when he was in the minor leagues and, you know, like questions about whether or not he did, you know, whether or not he, I mean, this is, this is a, a massive allegation, right? right? He denies it. He denies that, that he was aware that anything, that anything like a sexual assault was going on. He denies that he was aware of what subsequently turned to be, turned out to, you know, kind of be, was a physical assault was going on as well. The organization says that it was mindful enough to kind of vet these questions with the Dodgers, to vet them with the commissioner's office, to make sure that, you know, to make sure that they weren't doing something that would 
cast them in a, in a horrendous light and also just, you know, be, you know, very wrongheaded, right? Um, right. Like, unacceptable. Like, so there, the word that, uh, that Chaim Bloom used was uh, that they did not find, that, uh, that based on their due diligence, they didn't find disqualifying background and that they had taken these questions seriously. But yes, there, there's that question, right, which is a significant one that, uh, that looms in the public eye. And again, like I, I, Verdugo says that, like, you know, has, has said as well, like he was never implicated in the criminal report in having in any criminal activity. That doesn't mean that it, it's great judgment to have been near anything bad that happened. But, you know, he says that he was unaware of anything that would have been criminal. So, you know, it's, it's, it's hard. Like, you know, as yeah. a, it's that, you know, so. Anyway, by virtue of that past, though, I did have real questions about his inclusion in the trade. And then you're right. There are other makeup questions related to the baseball component of things uh, about effort level, about like whether or not he's doing the right thing in order to prepare himself for seasons and for games and thus whether or not he would be able to maximize his talent. And that also, you know, created questions about like, OK, is this is this the guy who you like when you talk about the five years of service time that you're going to get for someone who's a very talented player, someone who Last year was clearly an above-average everyday outfielder in, in, the ba- in baseball, but there are injury concerns, there are some off-field concerns. That's a lot of risk to take on with regards to this kind of touchstone trade that the Red Sox made. So, yeah, I, I think that there, I, I think there's risk that's happening here. I, yeah. I think that uh, I, I think it it does give a little bit of a window into the fact that uh, Kyan Bloom is not necessarily conservative. He is a risk taker. Like the, the combination of Verdugo and Brustar Gratterall as a two-pronged return is a high-risk one, I think. But I, I think that the Red Sox also, in their desire to be able to compete in the near term, saw Verdugo as being the only player that they were going to be offered who was capable of being an above-average everyday major league contributor in 2020 and probably in 2021 in talks surrounding Mookie Betts. I'm going to let you talk about a more fun thing now, okay. <laughs> which is, and I think that we are right to be skeptical of single season defensive metrics as a rule, but Raphael Devers' defensive metrics really turned around last year. There was concern about him as a prospect all along the way because of the body that he might eventually have to shift to first. And then some of the early returns in his major league career looked a little spotty, but by our metrics, by outs above average at StatCast, he had a, a pretty impressive season in the field. And I'm curious what changes, if any, led to that sort of turnaround and what you're expecting from him from a fielding perspective this year. So foremost, I would say that it's, you know, it's exposure to the major league environment. Like, yeah. I think that, you know, a lot of times infielders who fly through the minors end up being kind of overwhelmed by the clock of the big league game when they get there. I actually, so I've, I've watched Devers quite a bit dating back to when he was like 17 years old, and always thought that like he had really, really interesting, quick feet yeah. that would play well into being a, a guy with range, really strong arm. Uh, the accuracy of his arm was, you know, was, was sometimes capricious. And the same is probably true of the precision of his footwork. But, you know, if you, if you step back from the fact that he's in the big leagues to looking at him as like, oh, this is like a cherubic 21-year-old. Then you're like, okay, well, let's see what he looks like at 22 or 23. So I think that mostly experience has allowed him to have a better clock for the big league game and that uh, there are just natural significant gains that have happened as a result of that. Like, 
remember, the ball in the minors, Rafael Devers never played with the major league ball while he was in the minors. The, the move to the AAA ball only happened last year, and Rafael Devers, for that matter, only played nine games in AAA. So the way that the ball would come off the bat for ground balls in AAA and AA and, you know, high A and single A was way different than it was in at the major league level in a way that, like, permits a kind of comfort. Like, couple that with the fact that you have these kinds of monsters who are regularly hitting, like, 110-mile-an-hour rockets at you in the field. I just think that the the clock of the big league game defensively, especially at third base where you're so proximate to the uh, to the plate, takes a, a good while to set for a guy who's flown through the minors. And so I think that he made a lot of that adjustment and allowed some of those strong traits, the, the arm and especially the footwork and the, and the clock, uh, to just calibrate a little bit better at the big league level and that it's a pretty natural progression that that everyone was witness to where these kind of promising raw materials formed into something that if not finished was certainly more advanced okay i have two more and then we will we will let you get out of here um the first is sort of a broader competitive window question which is you know the yankees are the yankees the rays have one of the best farm systems in baseball and the blue jays are showing signs of their young core coming together this team seemed to approach this offseason with austerity in mind resetting their luxury tax threshold and we can interrogate how useful a desire that is but let's let's just take it at face value for a moment where does this team see itself long term in terms of its competitive landscape and when do you think they might start to pull out of that austerity posture well so i think that uh the you know the quote-unquote austerity posture was equally <laughs> uh, I, I think that you know they they wanted to reset right like they're you know they they were in a position where they were going to be paying somewhere between 50 and 95 cents on the dollar for every dollar spent beyond the luxury tax threshold this uh this coming year and that they you know they 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 like to reset their penalty rates in order to be able to feel better, I think, about their inve- investments in the big league club roughly once out of every three years. So I'll actually answer that that part first. They they reset in 2017. It got a lot of notice at the time. It was quickly forgotten over the last two years because they made massive investments in the aftermath of it. Essentially, they reset one year, then they spend, then they spend pretty aggressively in order to be able to round out their major league roster, right? Like, David Ortiz retired. They, they acquired Chris Sale because that allowed them to keep to keep a really good team while remaining under the luxury tax threshold. But then the next year, J.D. Martinez, the next year, re-sign Evaldi, signed Xander Bogarts to a long-term deal. So I, I think that they're probably in this like once every three year cycle of getting under the luxury tax threshold. We'll have to see what the next CBA looks like uh, and how that changes the incentives for them to stay in or get out of that cycle. But I think that they... like. There are, there are additional penalties on top of the luxury tax threshold that meant that if they were to maintain what was their 2018 to 2019 levels of spending over the course of 2020 to 2022, they would have ended up spending roughly $100 million more than if they got under this year and returned to the, 2020, to the prior spending levels in 2021 and 2022, right? So like, you know, business owners care about $100 million. It's not a rounding error for them anymore. So there's there's that, but there's also a separate component of it, which is you mentioned the strong kind of talent bases that exist. The Yankees at the major league level, not really at the minor league level anymore. The Rays certainly, with regards to both the major league and the you know upper levels of the farm system. The Blue Jays, they have a wave that's coming. The Red Sox did not have that wave coming. They have some interesting upside plays who've been into lower minors. They have like a, a guy here, a guy there who would reach the upper levels as a 
as a prospect who would be like an everyday guy. And maybe you probably didn't have an above average everyday or rotation regular prospect in their upper minors for the last couple of years. So they saw a need uh, in order to get back to the to their to what they view as like sustainable competitiveness to kind of re to to refill the pipeline to get better talent than they had in the upper levels and for that matter the lower levels but uh, with the trade of Mookie Betts and David Price they largely refilled at the upper levels that is what they they, they view a, a serious need to improve the inventory that's that's either major league ready like Verdugo or near major league ready with guys like Jeter Downs and Connor Wong. So I think that they see themselves long-term as being, they view themselves as being, you know, kind of competitors, but acknowledging that the Yankees are, you know, on paper, are going to have a much more impressive projection than them entering this year. And, you know, there's a good chance that they're behind the race as well. But I think they feel pretty good about where they're going to be in 2021 and beyond. Well, we're not going to let you get out of here without giving a prediction. So, Alex. Damn it! What do you see yeah. these Red Sox doing? What's their uh, record for 2020? I can't punt based on the fact that we don't know how much time sales going to miss. No. Nope. Mm. Mm. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, well, okay, that's okay. Uh, let's see. So I, I had put them. Uh, I had I had actually initially put them one win ahead of where they were last year. They were 84 last year. I was going to go 85. Uh, however, based on the fact that sale is going to miss is going to miss at least you know in, in my mind at least I've I've kind of pegged. This is, again, waiting for information on him. If he's missing six weeks to start the year to two months, then I'm going to bump that down to, I'm going with an 81 win projection for them. Oh, boy. Boston might burn down with that. Well, you can follow along for the Boston season with Alex's writing at the Boston Globe and on Twitter at Alex Spear. And you can order his book, which I have read and can confirm is excellent, Homegrown, How the Red Sox Built a Championship from the Ground Up, a cycle I'm sure they'll look to replicate. And we'll have you back on soon. Thanks a lot, Alex. All right. Megan, Sam, great talking to you. Thanks, guys. Cars and homes were tossed And oh, by the way, the games were lost 2002, the roof fell in Just waiting on the brink We cried until we filled the kitchen sink with tears And now we're going to discuss the San Francisco Giants And to do that, oh boy Oh, the Giants? Yes! (laughs) We're going to discuss the Giants See, I was ready to do a very serious introduction. Oh, this one's been weighing on me all day. Meg, has it been weighing on you all day? Yeah, yeah. This is a tough one. It's a tough one. And to help us sort through that difficulty, we have invited friend of the podcast, friend to all, really, uh, Grant Brisby of The Athletic, to join us and talk about some Giants baseball. Grant, how are you? I'm doing very well, and buddy, if you can't talk about them for an hour or whatever, like think about writing about them all year. <laughs> Do you? I have. I was wondering, are you at an age now? I'm at that age, and I so I feel like you might be. Are you at an age now where you can just kind of embrace a non-competitive team? Like it's just like finally the world is quieting down, and you can just relax in your couch and and throw all ambition aside and. And just exist with a bunch of new people that you don't really know that well. And, like, you can just kind of embrace that, like, nothing's happening anymore. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) It is, uh, it's, 
it's okay, you know? It's 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 not so bad when they're not doing great. It's uh, hang on. It's not so bad when they're not doing great. Uh yeah, let me parse that. So I had to I, I am under the weather, so I, I was about to cough and so I muted it, and so that's where why there was that like pregnant pause that was very awkward. It's not so bad when they're anyways, yeah, no, it's I would prefer them to do well. It gets everyone more excited. It gets it's easier to write about a team that's doing well, a team that's thriving. You've got you're kind of feeding off of that that reader energy, even if you're desperately desperately not reading the comments you still know it's there in theory and that is fun but it's also fun just to be like hey i wonder if this mike yastrzemski guy is gonna work and then when it does be like hey wink wink this is fun you know and there's there's no pressure there's no stakes you're not saying this guy's gonna be around in an all-star for five years it's just fun and, and sometimes i like fun yeah do you do you think that Mike Yastrzemski is going to be around in an All Star for five years? Because <laughs> that was like the great one of the great things about last year is that Mike Yastrzemski outhit Ronald Acuna and uh, <laughs> and like it was a huge heroic acquisition by Farhan and and same with Dickerson and same with Solano. Do any of those? Do Do you think that there's any any like lasting? I, I guess what I'm saying is that last year there were positive takeaways during the season. Do you think that there are positive takeaways from last season for this season, or were those just little like uh, little chunks of cookie dough in the wan milkshake? <laughs> I I think that they are maybe not individually. I'm not going to sit here and and say, oh yeah, Yastrzemski, that guy is going to be just the glue of the 2024 Giants. Like you you just sit and watch, you know, and Donovan Solano. I don't remember the exact exact statistic, but I think he's top. 10 of batting average and balls in play of all time like of all time any team last year he, he was like 419 so if he set the the parameters for like 200 plate appearances or something he's he's up there top all time batting average on balls in play which probably isn't sustainable but if you look at them like as a proof of concept that they're going to keep plugging people in and finding value where it it might have been a little hidden they're going to dust off some some things from the curio shop i like the overall sort of yeah you know they're going to try things and they generally have a pretty good idea of what makes a good baseball player uh, compared to perhaps some of the other organizations in the league so as a whole it was encouraging if you're going to start nitpicking every individual player yeah they all have their own little flaws and they were all available for reason but i think as a whole it sort of made everyone think okay this could work i can see it we gotta coordinate our questions we're, we were like tempted to play fast and loose on here oh, i don't think we Grant. need to no i don't think oh. we need to coordinate at all i think that it's perfectly fine to stumble around the 2020 giants preview like that's <laughs> fine you get we're just, good we're ones just searching there. for things yeah this is <sighs> it's, it's a farhan model sometimes you hit yastrzemski Sometimes you've got, I don't know who the equivalent does on the other side, but Solano, yeah, he's uh, the 12th highest BABIP since the dead ball era, or I guess <laughs> in the live ball era, and five of the ones ahead of him were in the 1920s, which uh, was close to the dead ball era. So seventh, if you you know say since like the murderer's row, then he's seventh, which is one of those things where you kind of don't want to say it out loud. <laughs> it's, it's fun to watch. It's not a great indicator. Yeah, I you know I appreciate his bat to ball skills, and there's a lot to like. He's good defensively, he's versatile, but yeah, he's not going to do that again. And you know all those babips from back then, like they played with uh, like the skull of a steer, like polished, <laughs> and, and and everyone in the field. I think we talked about this last time. How everyone had rickets. Every single baseball player had the dropsy in rickets, and they didn't eat vitamins. And diphtheria. so like 
Yeah, it's so this is why a batting average on balls in play is so different back then because everyone was gangly and sickly. But yeah, so Solano, great, great guy. Can I ask your actual like those were actual baseball questions, but can I like ste- can I steer us a little bit? Can sure. I provide some steering. So, one thing that I think we all are curious about Grant is your personal experience of the Gabe Kapler era okay. and how has your life changed <laughs> since you were introduced to Gabe Kapler? <laughs> and has he made you work out with him yet? No. Yeah. Nobody's made me work out with them. Come on. I'd, well, you I have diphtheria, die. so. Yeah, yeah. Well, right now I do. But no, I at first I was affected because I wrote about it and I got a lot of email messages, some supportive, some not, direct messages, stuff like that. And it was very much in my brain at all times. Now I don't necessarily think about it. It's, you know, kind of, I have the privilege to not think about it. It's It's not something that comes across every time I'm reviewing a lineup or thinking about a move the Giants might make or what the batting order might be. Tim, it's it's just like he's another manager right now. Uh, insofar, well, you know, there is one difference in that when the Giants lineup is announced at spring training, it's very awkward because it's not, there's no booze really. It's just silence. And, you know, you're used to Bruce Bochy getting as loud of a, an ovation as like Pablo Sandoval or, sure. or Hunter Pence or whatever. And now it's just sort of, huh. And it's a collective, oh, yeah, huh. You know, yeah. and, you know, I have heard a couple hecklers, but it's generally not negative. It's just an absence of positive. That That's a little strange. Other than that, I, I'm sure when he starts losing or if the Giants unexpectedly start winning – there will be a lot more discussion of the merits of one Gabe Kapler. Well, I mean, when he got hired, so much of the discussion and, and what you wrote about and your immediate response to it was about the, you know, what he, the, the way that he handled the assault case involving Dodgers minor leaguers when he was in charge of the farm system and the, you know, sort of ongoing questions about that and the, uh, you know, whether he has demonstrated growth from that and, you know, so on. So I think that that was, in a lot of ways, the most important conversation to have at the time. And I I sort of feel like lost in all that. We we didn't talk that much about what he is like as a manager, what we've now seen from him as a manager. And, and, you know, as all managers, I I don't notice them that much. Over the course of a season, they do thousands and thousands of, of actions that are out of my view and that I never really think about. And so I don't have strong opinions about most managers. What I know about Kapler, you know, as a manager, as as a Phillies manager, is that he got fired after two years and that he oversaw two teams that, you know, probably were considered to have underperformed. And so if he weren't Gabe Kapler, if he weren't a name that we knew, I think people would be surprised to see that manager immediately get another job, immediately get another shot, especially if that's his only experience. And so I, have you dug in much into his managerial style and, you know, how he did as a Phillies manager and what differentiated him and whether you feel, you know, baggage aside, whether you feel that he is like a good manager? Right. Yeah, that's a fair question. I, it, it does speak to his capabilities that the Phillies GM, I, I don't think I've ever said this name out loud, Matt Klentek? Klentek? That's right. Okay. Yeah, I'm awesome. That He wanted it back. He wanted Kapler back. And, and you know, that's the narrative, at least, that it was an ownership-driven change. The, the GM was totally on board and wanted to keep Kapler around. 
And it also speaks uh, to Kepler's viability that Farhan Zaidi, who before this hire was generally and universally seen as sort of like a guru, sort of, you know, he had his finger on something that hadn't been in San Francisco in a while, that he was able to find these these discarded gems, that he was able to, to reset kind of the whole minor league organization to have this newfound emphasis on patience, that for whatever reason, he was pushing all these right buttons. And he's a bright guy, an affable guy, and for whatever reason, he thought Kapler was the guy to replace Bruce Bochy, which is a hard job to fill. I mean, that that's as beloved as a manager can be in a city. And so when you're picking the replacement, you want to be pretty darn sure you've got it right. So he's got the backing of two pretty smart baseball smarty pantses. And when I dig into his style, I'm not sure how much to make of it because one of the things that Zaidi said uh, in his sort of uh, a Giants post-mortem at the end of the year before we knew it was Kapler, but Andy Baggerly, my, my colleague, was listening and said, oh, this sounds like Kapler. And he said, you know, we're going to look at some managers who have maybe done this before with, with limited success who might have learned from their mistakes. And Kapler is very – he talks about the mistakes he might have made where he came into it full analytical, full just, you know, let's go, let's let's do this by the numbers. I can convince anyone, I can make a believer out of anyone just based on the numbers being right. And then he realized, well, I got to back off on that just a little bit because these are humans. And, you know, he, he gave this sort of come to, I don't know what the opposite of Bill James is, come to, come to baseball as a moment where he said, okay, I need to get these guys to buy in to what I'm selling. And I can do that with stats, but I can also do that with sort of individual approaches and figuring out how to communicate with these guys. And so he feels at the end of his Phillies tenure that he was communicating a lot better and going by the stats and and doing this sort of thing where he's a neo-saber manager. And he believes that he's found a balance right now. Whether or not that's the case, it's the dream to have that balance. So whether or not he he's done that, this remains to be seen. I will note that in the spring – the Giants have been really wildly aggressive on the bases, tagging up from second to third in a fly ball, uh, taking off for second when there's a ball in the dirt. Really, really aggressive. And I don't know if that's just a spring thing or if it's going to last, but it's been fun to watch in spring. So this team last year kind of found itself in the awkward position of having a pretty good record around the trade deadline. They were famously reticent to and then decided not to trade Madison Bumgarner. And then they did the thing that we all kind of thought they would do, which is not make the postseason in the second half. So they were trying to learn something about themselves last year. And now they're in a position where I think they're probably, you know, the the front office's understanding of their competitive position is probably in line with ownership's understanding. And so everyone is kind of clear-eyed. And this is a season where they're going to also try to find out some stuff. And they have a number of young dudes on the roster and then some pieces that are clearly not going to be part of the next competitive Giants team. Grant, what is like the most important thing for this 2020 Giants team to find out about itself as it's looking ahead to its next competitive window? Good question. I hey, would thanks. say that it's it's mostly how to fold in the next generation because this is that transition year where you're going to have Elliot Ramos and, and Joey Bart in a perfect world, uh, Sean Jelly. You're going to try to fold them in 
to maybe contribute to a 2021 team that's going to contend. I don't know if you can guarantee that the 2021 Giants will contend. It might be a little optimistic, but they have a lot of young talent, and some of it will be in the upper minors. They'll have a fair amount of money to spend with Crawford and Belt and Samarja. Their money's coming off the books after 2021. They might get a jump on that spending before they leave. You have... In the recent history of baseball, starting with like the Nationals, when they were so bad they could draft Strasburg and Harper, and you saw that wave of talent coming, and then it was sort of there a year early. And that's been the pattern, I think, with the Cubs, the Astros, the Braves, the Twins, where you see that that crest of prospects just sort of coming up and you're pointing to it and go, aha, that's going to come soon. And then all of a sudden, you're just soaked in prospects and fun, and they're winning a year ahead of schedule. That's like the best case scenario for the Giants. So if that even has a remote chance of happening, it's definitely not the likeliest scenario. But if it has a chance, they're going to need to figure out the the players in their minor league system that they can count on for next year, whether that's Joey Bart, Jelly, Ramos, anyone and everyone who can help. They're just figuring out how to fold them in this year as organically as possible. I remember Ben wrote a piece a number of years ago about teams with old lineups, and I believe he found that the teams that had the oldest lineups in the league, it was usually either they were in a really good spot, like they were the favorites, that like their players were all mature and awesome, or they were in a really bad spot. <laughs> and the Giants last year had the oldest average hitter age in baseball despite being you know (laughs) theoretically a semi-rebuilding team and they're gonna be really old this year too if you just I mean for the most part they've still got Posey and Belt and Crawford and Longoria who are all in their you know mid-30s and and the breakouts last year the you know the quote-unquote young breakouts last year were like Yastrzemski who's gonna be 29 and Dickerson who's gonna be 30 and Hunter Pence is back and there's a, another thousand years worth of players that I haven't even named. They're very old. And I assume, I mean, you know, not not I assume, it is a fact that a goal of this next few years for the Giants will be to get to the far opposite side of that leaderboard and to be one of the youngest teams at the end of this. How long is it going to take to to get young, do you think, given who they have and, and sort of what the organizational depth is? What do you envision it being like? For the next couple of years, it's not going to be so easy to get young because other than Bart and other than uh, some outfielders, I'm not seeing a shortstop, a third baseman, a first baseman who you can plug in for 2021 and say, oh yeah, that guy, that guy's going to be ready. Yeah, don't worry about that. So you, you bought Longoria some time, Crawford a little bit of time, Belt a little bit of time. Crawford might be the closest to getting replaced because Mauricio Dubon uh, does play a competent shortstop. And that transition is probably going to start taking place this year where you're going to see Dubon in there a lot against tough left-handers. And then it might, if, he, if he's doing well enough, you might see it sort of progress to all left-handers. And, and then if you see it progress a little bit, oh, well, he's in there for some right-handers too. You know, they're trying to make him into this neo-Chris Taylor where he's he's in center field, he's in second, he's at he's short. But I also think that there's an opportunity for him if he's hitting well to sort of just quietly assimilate the shortstop position. And that that might work for Crawford. I don't see anything on the horizon for Longoria or for Belt. With Posey, it's pretty obvious you've got Bart right there. Bart's going to be up at some point this year unless 
something really screwy happens injury-wise or performance-wise. So you can see that transition. That's going to start to take place. And it's it's not a bad thing when you have two catchers to, to fight for playing time because you want as much rest as possible. But uh, it's not going to be an overnight thing where just like you wake up and like, wow, everyone's 25. It's uh, – it's going to take a, you know, it's not just the legacy players. It's that they don't have necessarily the best guys to to fill in for those legacy players just yet. And I mean, is it your expectation that Posey and Belt and Crawford and Longoria will all finish their contracts as giants that like there's not a sense that they're a month and a half of, uh, you know, like one hot month and a half away from being traded or anything like that? I could definitely see Belt getting traded, especially with the fences coming in and more importantly for Belt coming down. You know, he's not going to have to hit it over a 78-foot high wall or whatever to, to get it out of right center, at least to, to the deepest part of right center. So I can see Belt, you know, he looks great this spring. I could see his numbers being superficially better. And, you know, last year was a down year by any metric, but I could see him getting back to the level he was before that, where if you adjusted for ballpark, he was pretty darn okay. And if the Giants eat enough money, it's not like he's making thirty million. It, you know, he's 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 under twenty. And if the Giants eat some of that, I could definitely see him helping a team that has a need that comes up with an injury or a, a disappointing performance. You know, I've always I've been putting him on the Yankees for like three years now. It's like, come on, Yankees, just here, you know, take the belt. Like, let's set him free. He's he's his feathers are too bright for this cage. Come on, come on, just take a take a brand of belt. So I could see that finally happening this year. Uh, Crawford, not so much. I don't think that there's that magic combination of we will pay this down for a better prospect. Longoria is under contract, I think, for three more years, which is hard to believe. Posey's going to stick around until you know he basically forces a trade. I don't, I don't see him going anywhere while he's under contract. So Belt would be a yes. Longoria, probably not. Crawford, probably not. And Posey, pretty much no way. I want to talk about Bart for a second because you say he's going to come up this year, and I'm curious what you expect his timeline to look like because clearly there's like the service time consideration because this is not going to be a contending team, and I imagine they're reticent to start his clock. But also, he you know he was injured like in the fall, right? So right. how has he looked in spring so far, and when do you think that we might see him in San Francisco? He he's looked good in the spring as far as you can see his in-game power. I do think that the Giants will bring him up whenever they think that he's ready to assume a starting job. I don't think they're going to dicker around with the uh, service time. Of the, you know, they, they haven't done that in the past, and I know it's a new front office, but it hasn't necessarily been their MO. It certainly hasn't come from ownership. So it's going to be when he's ready to be a starter. And I do believe that there is enough concern with his hit tool that you don't want to jump on that right away. We're talking, I don't know, 100, 200 at-bats above A-ball. He wasn't so great in A-ball. He had an extended slump in San Jose. And there were some concerns that the second or third time around the Cal League that some pitchers, some coaches sort of knew where they should pitch him. And then when he got to the Eastern League, everyone had forgotten. He starts raking again. He gets to the Arizona Fall League and, and you know, they're not necessarily going on in-depth scouting reports. So they might not have known. But once you get the book on him, I don't know, maybe he's someone you can you can pitch to. I don't know if that's the case, but the Giants do want to figure this out before they just throw him in there like, here, Mike Zanino, you are the starting catcher forever. Just, you know, figure out how to hit while you're up there. And I, I'm pretty sure they don't want to do that. And I'm I'm sorry if I, I poked at an open wound with the, the Mike Zanino comparison, but that's sort oh, of no. sort of what, what people inside. are warning about Joey Bart. I'm curious. So there's, there's that situation, and then there is this – 
outfield log jam is probably too strong but how do you see the the outfield for this team sorting itself out in 2020 because when you and i have talked offline in our super secret communications <laughs> where i ask you to vet the fangrass depth charts you've indicated there might be some uh, moving around out there tell us about the moving around out there grant it's gonna be it's gonna be a very very they're gonna be open to a lot of different permutations i, I think that alex dickerson and hunter pence are sort of mirror images of each other where you have concerns about them getting 400 plate appearances you have concerns about them getting 200 plate appearances but you sort of hope you're going to get 300 from both of them and you're going to maximize those plate appearances to to maximize their strengths and so I, I see them as two components of like one piece. The Dickerson Pence, you know, might not be a strict platoon of just those two guys, but in another more cosmic sense, yeah, sure, it's basically a strict platoon. Yastremsky, they're going to use is is like a roving utility full time starter, so he might be in center field sometimes. He's going to be in right field a lot. They'll put him at left when they need to. You just know he's probably going to be in the lineup unless he really starts to struggle in this season against left-handed pitching. Overall, I think they're, they believe that he can help, whether it's on the bases, whether it is in the field, that he's just generally an overall solid player in so many aspects that he's going to be out there almost every day. And that leaves that sort of floating you know, whoever's going to be the third outfielder because you're not going to have Dickerson and Pence start at the same time. So is it going to be Billy Hamilton in center? It could be. They really have taken a shine to him in spring training. It might be someone like Austin Slater where he's really – he doesn't have much to prove in AAA. He's consistently raked in AAA. Is that approach ever going to play enough for him to be a starting corner outfield in, in the majors? Probably not. But you might see a lot of them because it did for until like September last year. He looked good. He had like an OPS of 900. Like he looked good until he just completely fell into a canyon in September. So you're going to have those guys, you know, Jalen Davis might be up. Steven Duggar, he's kind of like the projected starter in center, but you just don't know what you're going to get for him. Even before he was hurt last year, he was one of the all-time worst offensive outfielders in Giants history, which is like not the greatest bullet point on your LinkedIn. So, you know, they've got options. They're going to take a look at Elliot Ramos. You know, he's he's on the shelf with an oblique tweak, but he might be someone who, if he's just totally raking and, and moving up levels, you might see him in July instead of September. You might see them take a chance on, on him sooner rather than later, depending on, on all this stuff. So it's very, very pliable. Just they've got so many different ways to plug it in. You can just basically count on Yastrzemski getting a lot of playing time and Pence and Dickerson as much as their bodies will allow. So you, you said that Dickerson and Pence were like mirror images of each other. And my my brain thought, well, Hunter Pence is a very distinctive looking human being. So that seems crazy. And I know what you mean, but I have a brain that works in a funny way. And, you know, you look at Alex Dickerson and you're like, this is less different than I expected it to be. And he's got he's got a little bit of the goof. And he got I mean a little bit of the goof in the face. He's got a little bit of the goof. And, he, and I mean that in a positive way. He's just- oh, yeah. We're he's pro just, goof on this podcast. He's he's just he's slightly awkward in all the right ways. And yeah, there's a lot there's a lot of pensy similarities where last year it was like, hey, this is like dollar store pence. We got them. Uh, <laughs> so now they've got them both. They completed the set. 
Okay, Grant, I have two more questions for you before we force you to predict a record for this team. So I'm I'm previewing that question, which I know you knew was coming, but I just want to give you time to think about it while you're answering other stuff. Sure. The first of which is that this team did something a little a little nifty. Well, we can decide if we think it's nifty. Earlier this offseason when they they did some trades with the they did a trade with the Angels and they acquired as part of that trade the Angels first rounder from last year, Will Wilson. And I'm curious if you think that this is going to be, if these sort of trades are going to be um, part of their strategy to continue to supplement young talent or around the guys that they already have in their farm system, should we expect more business? I think so. It, it just makes so much darn sense. The Giants aren't, they don't have a $200 million payroll right now because they can't afford it. They they have a payroll below that because they just aren't going to start slapping veterans on this team and pretend like it's normal. So when you have that sort of surplus, why not sort of buy a prospect? It's it's such a novel idea that few teams actually do it. And I will say that after, I believe it's after the 2021 season, I, I don't have it in front of me, but there's one year where it just opens up and all that's on the payroll is Evan Longoria. Yeah. And it's like, you know, that's, it, it'll be once the raise subsidies factored in like 15 million is, is what they're going to owe Evan Longoria. And they're going to have us effectively $185 million to spend. And I mean, that's you know a little simplistic, but they will have all this excess cash. And it's not like you can just go to Costco and lump all the best players into a, a cart. Like, that's just not possible. Even if they did want to come, they might not be available. It's just so hard to spend the all in one offseason on everyone that's going to make the team, the franchise better for the years to come and exactly the blueprint you've detailed. They're going to spend on one free agent, two free agents, some really good free agents, but they'll still have some of that surplus. And even if the minor leaguers start coming up at the pace that that's expected, I would anticipate them maybe using some of that excess cash to Hey, give us your Will Wilson. We'll take, you know, Reed's card, Zach Cozart. Okay, sure. And we'll just release him right afterward. I mean, that's that's got to be the plan if you have all that excess cash in an ownership group that seems to believe in your, your vision. Yeah, in 2021, Samardra becomes a free agent, Kevin Gausman, Drew Smiley, Pence, Tony Watson, and then the year after that, Belt, Crawford, and Tyler Anderson come off the books. Oh, Tyler Anderson, that's not much of anything at all. <laughs> and then they have club options on Cueto, Posey, and Wilmer Flores in that year, which we imagine will not be exercised. I was going to say that Will Wilson's like the free sample, but that's not true because they had to take Cozart to get him. So it's not a free sample at all. He's a very expensive sample. This is going off your Costco analogy. So uh, Cozart, Cozart's the uh, timeshare. And uh, Will Wilson's like the nice vacation. Yeah, I guess that part's true. So with that sort of look ahead to their free agent situation in mind, I'm curious how you think of this team positioned in its own division, because obviously they continue to have to deal with the Dodgers. They have, you know, a sort of resurgent D-backs team. They have a Padres team that is willing to spend money and has a really deep farm the Giants, you know, they won a bunch of World Series in the last decade, but some of those were maybe a little bit lucky. So I'm curious <laughs> how they sort of see themselves progressing in in a division that has one heavyweight and is probably primed to have a couple more when it's all said and done. Although they continue to get to play against the Rockies, so they have that going for them. They do, they do. Except they still have to go to Coors Field, which is entirely brutal. It's just, the moon. Yeah. 
I really honestly believe that their template is to be the Dodgers, Dodgers North, to spend like the Dodgers, to develop like the Dodgers, to be the Dodgers. That is their goal. And it might not be quite like they might not be able to pull it off to that extreme. They might. So if they want to re-sign their version of Clayton Kershaw, Kenley Jansen, and Justin Turner, they might say, "Uh, okay, we'll just, we can't afford all three. So we will sign Clayton Kershaw and Justin Turner or, or Kenley Jansen and Justin, you know, they'll, they'll have to mix and match when it comes to those huge, huge contracts to keep the familiar players around. Otherwise, I think that's the template. They, they're going to want to be in the middle of every free agent discussion. They're going to want to have such an incredibly viable pipeline that they're not going to need every last free agent that comes down. They would like to be in the discussion for Garrett Cole while also being like the Dodgers and and not overbidding or, or playing their hand to, to get him. I, I think that's the template. And they have the resources they have the money. They've got this huge real estate development that, that's going up around the ballpark that should be like an infusion of cash. The ballpark's paid off. They want to be the Dodgers, and the commitment of the ownership to Zaidi's vision was I, – I really believe that they said, okay, just burn it down the way you see fit. Build it back up, and then we can start spending and, and being like those jerks down south. When do you think will be the first year that they actually have a better record than the Dodgers? Because it has not happened in seven years, even while they were winning World Series. Do you think that they have it? I mean, if you had to bet, would you bet that they will finish ahead of the Dodgers more than once in the next decade? Yeah, I would say so. I would say you you get enough lead time. They're they're going to start trading body blows with them. I you know once you start to get. The Dodgers, maybe there's going to be one of these years where they're not spitting out all these stupid prospects fully formed. And, you know, maybe that happens one of these years. Isn't that part of the Dodgers, though? That's part of being (sighs) the Dodgers is spitting out stupid prospects fully formed. (laughs) It is. But the Giants are supposed to do this in this scenario. See, I'm, I'm the voice of optimism here. I could see them, you know, once they're fully a fully functional Death Star... Yeah, I, they're going to have prospects to compete with the Dodgers. They're going to have the financial resources to compete with the Dodgers. I would rather be the Giants in the Giants position than the Padres. And that might see – like I know there's a Padres fan right now who's just punching his computer or phone. And I, I don't mean that in like a rude way. I just see the Padres are, are – they've built up this this incredible depth in their organization. But at some point, they're they're not going to be able to – spend quite as much as their rivals. It's, you know, the Hosmer, the Machado, that they've really sort of tried to prepare for this moment. But I don't know how many of those they're going to have left, especially if they perform like, you know, Eric Hosmer has performed. Like there might be some reticence from that ownership group. Whereas I see the Giants is once they get going, if they get going, being just a tiny bit more sustainable. And maybe maybe I'm just being a little bit too optimistic about their financial resources once they get going. But I don't I don't think so. I don't know. Did you know that Babe Ruth has the uh, all-time record for highest BABIP in the live ball era? Really? Yeah, Babe Was everyone Ruth. just like playing back and he would just, you know, squib his way to a high hate. BABIP? Too many records. That guy had too many records. He's getting records that are not in his category. He's a time traveler. Yeah, he's a hoax. All right, I think we're ready for predictions. <laughs> you think he's a hoax? Uh, yeah, I, I'm on like the record Bigfoot? here. Yeah, I don't, I don't believe that. that I don't think that's on the up and up. Yeah, I've made yeah. the case before. I think that, I think it was a hoax that got out of hand, and and then people <laughs> over the years forgot 
that they knew that it was a hoax and now it's it's a legend that we think is true yeah but that's a that's a different episode yeah yeah one i'd be interested in recording we'll just have to wait till ben goes on vacation again so hey grant how many games are the giants winning uh i'm gonna go 40 they're gonna go 40 <laughs> 40? And, 40 and 48 because of all the games canceled because of quarantines and stuff oh jeez. Yeah. yeah no i'm just i'm feverish right now and I'm not, it's not baseball fever. It's like a, a literal fever. So How I'm, many I'm times have you touched your face since we've, we've It's impossible talking. to stop. I would like to say, I have had the exact opposite experience of, it sounds like both of you and also the whole world, where I was told you need to stop touching your face by the CDC. And I went, well, I'll never do that. I touch my face constantly. It's all the time, never stop. I love to touch my face. And I just stopped. And it's been wonderful. I have never felt stronger, more empowered I have an itch on my nose and I just don't scratch it and it goes away and I feel like I have cracked the code. This is the first thing in my life that I have felt good at. Damn. Wow. Yeah. I I I took two flights and the whole time it's like, don't touch your face, don't touch your face. And like all of a sudden my foot's in my mouth. Like I I just am not good at it at all. Yeah. I I mean like my approach has just been to wash my hands constantly because – I know I'm going to fail at the not touching my face thing, so probably going to lose all the skin on my hands. And then it's like, is that helpful? This isn't a great thing to joke about. We're going like, to no. look back in like a week and be like, mm, that was a mistake. We're so not everyone, no, uh, wash- we're not joking. We're, we're raising awareness. And I'm, I do hands. have a question, though, because yeah. I feel like like my, <laughs> my pride may be on the line here. Where does the face start? Because I have, <laughs> I do still put my hand on my neck kind of under the sort of the base of my chin so like there's no contact with the ridge of the chin but like i'm still leaning on my neck so it's in the area but i'm not touching my face that's okay right like you just have to keep it away from the fluid zones yeah Yeah, just just orifice free like just stay away from those orifices or orify there i think it's orifices 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 porpoises anyway Grant. Uh, but my honest prediction is going to be, uh, let's see, what, what is, I, I'm trying to do math because 70, 92. So I think they'll win 72, so 74 and 88. That is my prediction. All right. Well, people can follow you. I'm sure that everyone who listens to this podcast already does. But in case you don't, he's on Twitter at Grant Brisby. You can find his writing at The Athletic. Grant, thanks for hanging out. and Stop touching your face. I was doing it right now. Damn it. Feel better, man. All right. Thank you. All right. That'll do it for today, and that'll do it for this week. Thank you for listening. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and to get access to a few special perks along the way. Those listeners are Meredith Kite, Mark Black, Jeff Skelly, Tony Adams, and Josh Newman. Thank you all. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectivelywild, and you can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me, Sam, and Ben coming via email at podcast at fangrass.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you're a supporter already. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. We'll be back next week with more. Until then, have a great weekend, and remember to wash your hands. Nothing will keep us together We can beat them 
Just for one day. 